Hi there, and welcome to These Four Walls, the podcast that explores how we shape our spaces and how our spaces shape us. I'm Erin Potter, and this podcast is my excuse to ask questions to some of my favorite interior designers, architects, and makers so that we may all benefit from their experience, insight, and expertise. Throughout these conversations, I hope to dig deeper into the principles, philosophies, and techniques that underpin some of the finest contemporary design and perhaps learn a trick of the trade or two. On this episode, I caught on with Amos Goldrick of Amos Goldrick Architecture. You can find him online at agarchitecture.net or agarchitecture across the socials. With Amos's decades of experience in architecture, working for many of the great architecture firms and now running his own practice, working across new builds, refurbishments and extensions, Amos provided great insight based on his wealth of experience in the industry. We explored many topics from the hashtag don't move improve movement to innovative products that they regularly use to sustainable and ecological design and the circular economy to Amos's humanitarian design work to the ways in which he collaborates effectively with clients and everything in between. It was a jam packed conversation that I'm very excited to share. So without any further ado, let's jump in. Hi, Amos. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Erin. Really nice to meet you let's dive right into it. How do you describe what you do and who you do it for? Okay, so we're um, a young practice in North London um, and we have a strong uh, and focused ambition to change people's lives in a positive way. Um, I'm originally from Israel. I came to London in 93 and studied architecture at the um, Architectural Association um, and graduated in 99. Um, I worked with for uh, a variety of, sort of high-profile uh, London-based practices such as David Chipperfield, Stanton Williams, um, Howard Tompkins, and Feldman Clegg Bradley Studios. And in 2010, I established uh, my practice, Amos Goldreich Architecture. Um, we deliver full architectural services and we work closely and in collaboration with our clients and end users. Um, and the aim is to create buildings and places uh, which have a, a positive impact on people's lives and their a joy to experience. Can you talk me through a little bit more of your design philosophy and the design philosophy of Emma Goldrick Architecture? So we work from the inside out and we start with uh, the brief. The brief is extremely important and the end user's needs. So whether it's the needs of our direct client or if it's an end user, if the client is a developer, for instance. Um, and as part of the evolving design process, um, we kind of rigorously interrogate uh, a given brief. And we explore it and we evaluate ideas, concepts, um, and details uh, in order to identify um, innovative design solutions. Um, the results often go beyond um, our expectations and, and uh, preferably beyond the expectations of, of, of the clients. Um, 
and we go through sort of spatial logistics um, and by fusing sensitivity to um, the client's uh, needs um, with a sort of subtle and understated aesthetics. What excites you about refurbishment and retrofit and why do you think the hashtag don't move improve movement has sprouted over the last few years? Well, to start with, um, we don't only do refurbishments, um, uh, but we, uh, we recognize them as, as a crucial um, kind of sector that, that we deal with, especially in London, where the majority of their housing stock is from the 19th century or early 20th century. Um, and in most cases, uh, these houses need to adapt to our modern lifestyle and, and, and to the, the environment. So generally speaking, um, refurbishing means an improvement in the, in the well-being of, of the inhabitants and also an increase in, in property value. Um, so I think um, the don't move, improve, um, Kind of concept was was started by by the NLA, uh, the New London Architecture. Um, they have these uh, competitions every year. Came about because of this this need, um, I guess, to to adapt these these um, these out of date um, homes uh, to fit better to people's lifestyle and and also the 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 environment. Yeah, and I suppose the opportunity cost of moving is quite high in London as well now. So it's kind of making do with what you have and improving what you have. Correct. For most people, renovation work is, is probably the, the biggest expense that they will ever make. And obviously moving to a new, new house uh, is usually much more expensive, um, especially the stamp duty here is really high and, and there's all other considerations so um um so make it make like 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 you said making the most of what you have is 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 really for for most people is the only way to improve their life i wonder just on a, a separate note how willing people are to go and renovate their properties i mean the stress involved i mean potentially moving out of their place um i've, I've seen a lot of obviously properties that were built in the 1930s that for their developers dream but for an individual who lives there thinking, oh, we're going to do a total rehaul of this place, sometimes is, can, can seem like it's impossible if you're not an architect or a developer and you don't have an understanding of the final results. It can seem like a big thing to take on. Yes, definitely. I mean, it's, it's always good to, to um, employ a, a professional. It is, it is stressful. And I've, um, when we renovated our own house, um, I was I was the architect, but also kind of the, the client. So it is extremely stressful. Um, but working with professionals like interior designers and architects uh, is meant to relieve you with some of some of the stress. Um, it's still going to be stressful, but it, but it's also a fun process. So it's 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 worth it. Oh yeah, and so rewarding. I think when people yeah. see the build coming together as well, and they see the walls go up, and they think, "Oh, this is going to be my new kitchen." You know, they can get excited about that. Um, you've done so much work on Victorian and Georgian properties. What is it about them that excites you and what do you find most fascinating? 
There's a lot of history and beauty in them. Um, some of them have really generous uh, physical proportions, especially some of the Victorian and Edwardian properties. Um, and I greatly respect and admire them. Uh, the challenge is always to merge them with uh, modern aesthetics and design. And I, I, think, I think they actually complement each other if, if, if it's done properly um they 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 live very comfortably together so um yeah there's a, they're, they're always a, a challenge um and it's um it's further a challenge when you're working on um listed properties um so either grade one or grade two where you need permission if you want to remove um uh, an historic feature um, and then grade one is even more challenging where you really need permission for for everything even even to change a, a, a color of a wall for instance so I wonder how innovative can you be within the planning process um, because obviously like you said if you're working in a grade one or grade two listed building they, they're gonna have their core strategy is going to influence uh, What the final outcome is so how how innovative or how much can you push design or push functionality? To really bring it into the 21st century based on their kind of strat strategic um, ideals, that's that's a really good question and um, I Can answer it with an example. So we we have a really challenging project that's been in the office for about seven years because of its complexity and it's a grade two listed uh it's a long story but to keep it short um it's an apartment building um in kensington uh really kind of posh and nice area in london um the the block used to be um mod headquarters in the war then it was uh converted in a, into a hotel and then since uh, 2000, it's been um, sort of luxury flats. Um, and in the process of the conversion from the hotel to flats, uh, one of the escape staircases were sort of forgotten uh, and was all boarded up. Uh, it's at the back of the apartment block overlooking uh, the mews. And we have uh, three clients that their flats are adjacent to this staircase. And their plan was or is to buy that staircase from the freehold, split it into three, and then each of their flats is going to join into that bit, that new bit of the, of the staircase. So that's something that we've been involved with. Um, so it took a long time to get planning and listed building consent for that because the councils have never come across such a, a thing before. They didn't know how to dig with it really. I mean, it's a beautifully preserved um, stone staircase with all the original ironworks and so on, really amazing. Um, so finally they agreed, but then there were other, other issues. We finally, a few days, uh, it was yesterday, we got the final uh, green light so the clients now need to uh, complete the purchase um, which is str a strange concept as well because they're buying they're literally buying a staircase with a bit of um, there's some side uh, rooms mm -hmm. um, but every 
square meter in that part of London is worth a lot. So, um, and for one part, for one flat in particular, they're getting quite, they're getting two flights of stairs, um, and, 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 a, and a big room. Um, so they're getting this huge wow factor, uh, which will be amazing. So, yeah, so we really had to push the boundary a bit in that, in this project and just work with, with the planners who sometimes can be a bit always a bit challenging but with planners and especially conservation officers it's it's about it's about a dialogue and it's about you pointing out what you're trying to do but you also need to kind of understand where they're coming from so so you find the balance um and then and then you can do really nice architecture many of your clients mentioned how impressed they were with your collaborative approach from your experience, what are the most important attributes of collaboration when working with a client? And therefore, how do you collaborate effectively? Yeah, it's, it's one of the our key um, sort of USBs, I guess. Um, I think there's, 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 there's a number of ways of, of, of working collaboratively. One is, it's simple, is to, just to be transparent and honest. And you really need to listen to your clients and you need to imagine yourself in their in their shoes um like we discussed earlier um to most people uh, a refurbishment of a home is the single best, uh, biggest expense that we'll have ever have so they will be stressed and but they will and because of that they will require reassurance and guidance from from you, from us as, as architects and designers. As a client, uh, there isn't much more demoralizing than not being a consultant, uh, consulted or asked for input into their own projects. Um, so yeah, you, you're not designing for yourself. You, you, have, you have a client and um, so that's, that's really key. We also always approach projects on equal footings with our clients. So they, they become, they, they really become an integral part of our, of our design team. Uh, and we're all on the same level. Again, most clients, they're, they're first, first time, uh, AA, they're first time clients and they're first time doing such, such a project. So obviously, uh, there's a mismatch of experience between an architect that has designed dozens of of, of houses um, to a client which uh, who are doing it for the first for the first time. Um, we had a one of our clients commented that we were, and it's quite an interesting comment. He said we were doing things together, not having things done to us. Mm. So I think that kind of sums it up. Uh, we sometimes, um, we try to go the extra mile. Um, I think the best uh, result of a project is if you can deliver something uh, which is beyond the client's expectations. Uh, and then, and, and, and again, we had, uh, we went to visit a, a project we, we finished recently and, and and the client really commented that he said that the outcome is just beyond what they what they expected um, so when you hear that you you know that you've done you've done well and the last 
point to make is be be pragmatic as well. Uh, think about how to deal with uh, real problems in a real life and practical way and not in a crazy and expensive led solutions, which I think, I think architects and designers sometimes guilty in that, that um, they, they think more about that it, it's, uh, that the end should be um, good in photographs and um, everyone, every now, every, everyone now is concerned about how that a project needs to be um, good on Instagram. Um, but I think you need to, there's always needs to be a link back to, to the brief. So, so the, the brief is, is fundamental. And what interested you in architecture before you started studying? Um, I kind of got the bug because um, my late parents were both architects and designers. So my father did a lot of things. He was uh, an architect, a designer, a state set designer, professor of architecture. He taught architecture for a long time. And then my mother was an interior architect. Um, and I say interior architect rather than interior designer. Um, um, so I kind of, um, I was exposed to, to design and art as, as a child. Uh, at some point I thought about going into product design. Uh, but then I felt I wasn't technical enough. Um, then I wanted to be an artist and my mother said over my dead body, uh, you can't, you can't really make money out of art. Well, you can, if you're Damien Hurst or someone like that, but, um, so she kind of suggested, why don't you try architecture? Um, so I, I applied to do a foundation course, but then, uh, the interview, they said, well, you have a really good portfolio. Maybe you should just go straight into first year and then see if you like it or not. Um, so I did, and I had an amazing year. I didn't, I don't think I even took, took all holidays. I just worked really, really hard. Um, and then I was sort of hooked. Um, but for me, it's a, it's a sort of, um, it's a bit of a love and hate relationship. Um, there's, there's a lot of issues with, with architecture. I think it's a, it's an amazing profession. Um, and I think also interior design is, um, but there's, there's a lot of, it's, it's hard. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm in it for the long run. So. And fast forward now to uh, 2020. What do you consider innovative design? I think materials uh, are playing a, uh, an interesting role and they certainly excite me. Um, and especially new materials, um, especially if they solve problems or improve um, our and I'm saying I mean our clients' um, well-being and lifestyle. So, for instance, uh, in a project we did called Alfred Road in Islington uh, for a kitchen and all the joinery, we used a material called Phoenix NTM. Um, it's as thin as veneer, but it has uh, nanotech properties. So. 
uh, light scratches, you can just uh, wipe them off. The, the material sort of heals itself. Uh, it's durable. You can use it as a, as a worktop in kitchens. So you can put hot plates on it and nothing happens. Um, and it's antibacterial. Um, so we use that on, on wardrobes as well. Um, so in, in recent years, as, as sort of technology develops, there's all, all of a sudden there's all these really cool materials that have amazing properties. Um, there are these tiles that are called uh, Dekton, which are literally non-destructive. When you go to their showroom, um, they demonstrate on it, they put um, nail varnish and uh, then a permanent marker, then they set it on fire all sorts of uh, abuse and then they just they just put it under a tap and it just all washes off and you can't see any any markings so although they're a bit more uh, expensive than than other materials uh, they have a, a really long um, uh, lifespan and they're very durable um, and then we also like to use traditional materials but in an innovative way so for instance in one of our listed properties at the moment, not, not the staircase project, another one, uh, we've designed this um, media wall cabinet and it's clad in metal, but the company applies the metal as a really thin liquid layer and they can basically um, apply to any surface. And the result is both durable but striking because it it is metal it looks like metal but when you look at it is it's it's so thin that you kind of ask yourself how so so that's that's kind of exciting wow yeah that sounds really interesting what other considerations do you make when choosing a material for a project are there any certain characteristics you talk about like the, the longevity the durability um and then i suppose the subtle aesthetic but are there any other considerations you make yes i think um sustainability and the environmental credentials of of any materials are are extremely important at the moment um and and will be the case um moving forward especially um with the current uh climate crisis and the current pandemic um so sustainable architecture and, and the use of sustainable materials should be an integral part of our design process. Uh, it's not something that you sort of tick off or you pay a consultant to, to sort of tick off um, a, a report saying, oh, yeah, you've done that, you've done that. Okay, it, 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 is, it is a sustainable building. It, it, um, and I think into this, uh, there are two things, two main things uh, that we need to consider. One is uh, re the reuse of, of buildings and especially materials. Um, it's, it's seen as a less glamorous um, um, route to take because it's, it's, especially with reusing buildings because it's, it, it's not a new building. It's not, it has that, that appeal of, of something new and innovative, um, but uh, it's extremely, important and you need to remember that the most sustainable building is the one that you don't demolish because every building has an embedded um, carbon 
in it. Um, and once you demolish it, then you sort of lose that, that carbon and then you, uh, you put in sort of by, by building a new building, you, you sort of generate more, more carbon. So, um, but I, I think there's, there's definitely a change in, in, in our profession and also in the client's, uh, mind, um, that you can still create great buildings, um, uh, from, from, from existing structures. Another thing which is, uh, gaining momentum is um, circular economy um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, research and a lot of um, discussion about it um, the basic idea is that sort of goods and resources are designed and constructed to be more uh, durable um, to be able to restore them refurbished recycle um, disassemble them and then erect them somewhere else. Um, um, and what it does, it preserves the highest uh, useful purpose of uh, the components and their materials for as long as possible. Um, and then uh, by doing so, you, you reduce uh, waste. And I think as architects and designers, um, we have... Well, we, we have, uh, it's, it's our duty to inform and educate uh, our clients um, on the sustainable procurement routes and materials. This um, has gained uh, an awareness uh, within architecture through a sort of group of architects under, um, or kind of a, a statement made by 17 Sterling Prize uh, winners under the, under the name of Architects Declare. And since then, around the world, um, architects signed up to this declaration. Uh, we, we've signed it as well, that we, uh, we, will, make, we will push um, the, the idea of reuse and circular economy within, within our profession, within our clients, um, and then, and then within, within projects. So for instance, using less uh, concrete or, and, and using more sustainable materials and, and so on. So. And I suppose as well, you're building towards a collective vision. Yeah. Um, I walked past someone the other day and overheard them comment that uh, they said ornaments, uh, what use do they have other than gathering dust? And I thought that was a really interesting comment. And I wanted to ask you, having worked with a multitude of clients, are you seeing or have seen in recent times an erosion of materialistic culture? Are you seeing that they, they're wanting to have less stuff and live a more minimalistic lifestyle, as is kind of propagated in you know, the general design scene, that minimalism is you know, not only an aesthetic choice, but also a um, lifestyle choice. And yeah. I just was wondering when people are renovating or refurbishing maybe their current properties they're looking to um, cut down on their stuff I'm, I'm, I'm seeing I'm seeing both mm. um, we have clients that have a lot of stuff um, and they still want to keep it so um, but it's funny because yeah you, you do all that work and then all this stuff just returns back to to the better looking shelves or something like that um, um, others come already with, um, I guess they've been 
converted to um, to having less clutter, um, and then it's part of their brief, and they want more, more, more storage. So storage is always always one of the first things that people want, uh, but then but then they want it to be completely hidden, uh, and then it's about finding suitable spaces for that. Yeah, can can we talk a little bit more about about that balance? I see. Uh, in a lot of what you, what clients are wanting these days, they want this balance of spaciousness and storage with minimal clutter. And so how do you solve this problem and find this balance? And do you have any projects that you can talk about where you struck this balance? So sometimes uh, there are areas within the house that are either not fully utilized or they've been sort of forgotten uh, and they become dead space. So in, in all our project, we always try to well to find space-saving solutions and and to make the most out of out of a, a given space. Um, so it's it's used, but also um, um, how how to deal with storage that it it doesn't become this sort of eyesore. Um, and again, I'm referring to our Alfred Road project. It's a typical sort of terrace house. Uh, but it has a lot of split levels. Um, and in that project, we added a loft conversion. Um, so what it allowed us, it allowed us to utilize uh, a dead area, which is um, in a half landing between uh, a bedroom and the roof extension above. Um, and we installed in them uh, pull-out drills, doors. Um, so when you look at it on the surface, you just see the, see the face of the drawers, but actually there's there's a depth to them, uh, and you can pull them out, uh, and there's quite a storage, quite a lot of uh, space that you can use uh, for storage uh, this way. So it's finding those areas in a home to build out. Yeah, and then being being sort of creative and uh, clever about it. Um, every every niche is a potential use. In interesting use uh you can create niches as well um so it's all about the niches i love that idea yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the most exciting bit of a house really <laughs> can we get a little bit more philosophical now what impact do you see the home environment having on inhabitants behaviors emotions and habits and and how can these be molded or shaped by architecture or interior architecture i think it's all to do with uh, well-being. Well-being is becoming quite a, a buzzword, um, but uh, rightly so. Uh, it's a huge topic. Like I said, it's very much in vogue now. So I have I have a great interest in this. Um, when you design a building, whether it's it's new or existing, um, every aspect of the design can be improved, or or can be harnessed to improve the health and well-being of its occupants. And this, uh, this involves um, the air quality, uh, water filtration, lighting design uh, that has an, an impact on, on our life um, and the way you can dim light and, and increase light and the light temperature and that has a, an effect on our uh, sleeping cycle. Um, building materials we, we touched upon um, through through the space planning, the furniture design, and planting itself. So um, there are certain 
for instance, there are certain plants that produce more oxygen than others. There's the, um, and also being close to nature uh, has been proved to um, improved our our mental health and and sort of well-being. So, so the fact that you if you design a space and you can look out onto a garden rather than looking out at a at a road or, or, or brick wall that that will have a, a huge impact on your on your on your life i think um the notion of uh well-being um will become and is and is becoming more important than ever and uh, now especially uh with regards to our own homes um following a while we are going through this global pandemic um, when we are forced to spend more time at home and kind of reevaluate our home. Um, and we've, we've noticed, um, so we, we suddenly get calls from people saying, yeah, we've, we've been in our home for a long time now and we, we need a, either we need more space or we need to create a better uh, study. Um, so, so definitely that's, that's going to have a huge impact. Can you talk me through your project helping to design and build a solution to provide better living conditions for victims of domestic violence? So that's been a really interesting project we've been involved with. Um, it took about nine years to realize it. Um, the first six years were uh, due to NIMBY. Do you know that term? No, uh, I haven't it's, heard it's, it. it's 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 an English term um, means not in my backyard. Oh yes. Uh, although this this project is not in the UK, it's in, mm. it's in Israel. Um, the uh, the neighbors, the minute they've heard about the uh, designated use of of the, of the site for the shelter, they um, they use their power to go after our client who was a charity uh, and to stop this project from, from going, going ahead. Um, and after six years, uh, the, the high courts in Israel overruled um, and we got the green light. So uh, as a background, we were commissioned um, by a charity called No to Violence, um, which is based in Israel. Um, to design and deliver um, a shelter which is located uh, near Tel Aviv in Israel. Um, and this shelter provides a really uh, much needed refuge uh, for women and children uh, who arrive in a state of real distress. Um, they've got deep uh, psychological problems and so do their children. Um, and the brief was uh, to design a shelter that would provide them with a tangible uh, sense of calm and security. Mm. Um, our client um, was a woman called Ruth Rasnick, an incredible, and very inspiring uh, woman. She's in her uh, 80s. Um, she founded this charity in 1970. Um, and she commented, um, said something really um, wonderful that sort of sums up um, what we've done. And she said, uh, the architects created a miracle, a home from home, a place where people of desperate backgrounds can come to terms with their individual trauma, 
where we can help rebuild their lives, give guidance and support during a key period of transition. Wow. Building uh, completed um, about three years ago. Uh, it's fully sort of running. Um, it saves lives. Um, they've already had, I think, three births in, in the shelter. Mm. Um, and it's an interesting building because um, we obviously had a lot of hurdles and challenges uh, with neighbors who didn't approve and still don't approve. Uh, extremely low budget um, situation in Israel is that uh, the government only support existing shelters with the running costs, but only up to about 60%, but they don't mm. support new shelters. So they relied solely on private donations and they were still raising money through, through construction. Uh, and even I think some like six months before completion, they were on the verge of going bankrupt. Uh, so it was a huge, huge struggle. Um, but, um, there was this sort of collective effort by, by the architects and the builders and the, all the other consultants to, to kind of push, push ahead as hard as we could, despite all the difficulties. Wow. That's an amazing project to have worked on and been a part of, and, and also to have um, pushed through all that adversity on your end to actually, to complete the project. I, I'd be interested in, in understanding a little bit more along this humanitarian design line, um, the positive and progressive values that you see buildings in general delivering to people and communities. And, and, and if there are any, uh, the stories you can talk about from um, the center that you've created um, that have had positive impact on people's lives? Well, like I said, I think it's a, it's a really unique project and I feel very privileged that we, we had a chance to, to work on it and, and deliver it. And that's not only because of the um, challenges in terms of architecture, but because of the impact that it has on, on, on the community and a really volatile uh, community of, of, of women and children mm. who have been victims to really unimaginable uh, trauma and, and, and abuse. I mean, the, the stories that we heard, because we, uh, when we started working on the project, um, we visited uh, some of the existing um, shelters who I think one of the, the other, one of the big differences in it's a purpose-built shelter, shelter. And most shelters around the world are, are existing uh, buildings, mostly homes that's been um, sort of adapted to be used as, as shelters. And they're not necessarily fit for purpose. Um, they've got um, sort of dead spaces in them. Uh, they're not that secure for, for the women and, and, for, and for the children. So I think definitely with this project, it was um, uh, a unique way to um, redefine the shelter with a new um, typology uh, that would fit to their, to their needs. Um, and maybe we can, by doing so, we can use that as a as a model to use um, all over the world. 
it's also frightening when you kind of hear the statistics, for instance, that in in the UK um, there are about um, two hundred women that are turned away every day uh, because there no there's no space in in in, in existing shelters or that. Um, so it's a it's a worldwide uh, problem. Um, and it's it's an even bigger problem now during the the pandemic. So there's mm. there's been a huge increase in domestic violence um, uh, worldwide. Why is humanitarian design so important to you? Well, architecture architecture is about people, mm-hmm. and I feel that we as architects and designers uh, we really have um, we can really change people's lives in in a in a, in a really positive way um and and there's examples from whether we work on on this um shelter or were or we did a we did a flat for uh a client who lives abroad and flies into london every week uh, has a really stressful lifestyle and he said that the minute he comes home to his to his new flat he's completely relaxed and he's calm and so on and that's that's a huge, A, it's a huge compliment. Um, and it just shows that yeah, uh, design can, can improve people's lives. So I think I see it a bit as, as our duty uh, to help the community. And it's something that I'm continuing to do so. So for instance, I'm, a, I'm part of a, of a think tank called Architect Aware. Uh, we're actually launching, officially launching us uh, next week. Um, it's a group of uh, architects, policymakers, and our aim is to improve um, homelessness in, in the UK. Mm. Uh, so it's finding solutions through architecture and through um, change of policies. What a note to end on. All architecture is humanitarian by nature. Definitely some food for thought. If you're interested in learning more about Amos's collaboration on the No to Violence Shelter, I'll share the link in the show notes below. In the meantime, thanks again for joining me on another episode of These Four Walls. It was a great pleasure to speak with Amos, and if you're interested in learning more about the services Amos and his team offers, or want to explore ways to improve your current living space, head over to agarchitecture.net or follow on Instagram at AG Architecture. As always, all links mentioned can also be found in the show notes. Until next time, cheers.